And a cracking program we've got for you this evening on Rational Radio. We're going to be talking to Paula Sullivan in uh, just a few minutes about more corruption at Eskom. The corruption that came through uh, was happening while mm, the rest of us were focusing on the big boys. Well, down the line there were billions of rands that was being stolen as well. We're also going to be talking later to Gideon Galloway. He's the chief executive and founder of a company called King Price, which has done a huge deal. It uh, has acquired StanGen Insurance for 140 million rand from the old Able. Uh, there'll be more on where King Price is going and, and how it's got so big so quickly. Magda Wizikcha will be joining us a little later in the program to talk about her fight with Alan Gray. And, well, with Magda, one never really knows what's going to be coming up next. And uh, we'll be talking to David Shapiro in New York. I think Magda is, in fact, out of the country at the moment. But we'll be picking up with David in New York where he is visiting members of his family uh, and uh, got the opportunity of seeing his uh, brother, his son-in-law's, uh, company listing on NASDAQ. And then the country's top media lawyer, Dario Milo, will be joining us later in the program. He's with uh, Weber Wenzel, and the man who wrote the book about defamation will be telling us why so many defamation actions seem to be going on at the moment. I don't know if Dario can tell us much about Trevor Manuel and versus the EFF because he's Manuel's lawyer, but he certainly will be able to give us a broad uh, idea of why South Africans are going to court, especially against journalists. But before we uh, chat to Paul, let's just pick up on the markets. And the markets today were, I guess, relatively quiet in the ending anyway. Uh, the all-share index on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange down by less than a fifth of a percent, 0.13%. Uh, the RAND, though, is mm, gathering more momentum. Uh, it improved to 1768 against the British pound today, and it almost, almost broke 14 against the U.S. dollar. So both of those looking good, looking in the, in the right way. We, um, having a look at the individual stocks on the market, we do have uh, RCL, which was up 4%, ABI, InBev, also a 4% gain, a Harmony, 4%, Northam, 3.25%, and then uh, Sibanya uh, up by 2.3%. So it gives you a un- understanding that, uh, it, once again, it was pretty much the resources stocks that made the running. On the way down, uh, Fortress, the um, b- um, oper- operation uh, in Property, that was down by 2.5%. Vivo, uh, which bounces up and down all the time, uh, that was down by 3%. It's an energy company. And then Trueworth's taking a knock from what's happening internationally. That share, uh, a retailer, was down by just over 2%. Anglo-American and Supergroup finish off the top five of the losers for today. But, well, I guess generally speaking, it hasn't really been that bad a day on the market. But what is going to be an interesting time right now is to chat with our fireball of the day. Uh, and his name, no doubt you know already, is Paula Sullivan. Oh, this way. Hello, Alex. How are you? Ah, uh, Paul, I'm Fred. You ready to go on? Yep, ready to rock and roll. Perfect. Well, it's our fireball is coming on now. Sorry, I had... Uh, um, uh, Paul O'Sullivan will be with us in just a moment. Uh, we're trying to do this every week is to, to get the latest stories that are on the markets uh, happening in South Africa. Just to quickly update you on the markets, uh, we saw the 
Big stocks of the day. Uh, the big losers today were uh, primarily Vivo, True Words, Fortress, Anglo American, and Supergroup. And the big winners RCL, ABI, InBev, Harmony, and Northern. But today, uh, the big well, the big winner in our book all the time, of course, is Paul O'Sullivan. And it's really good to have you on the show to, uh, today, Paul, as ever. Uh, we've got a story uh, that is based on work that Forensics for Justice has been doing looking below the radar, below the top guys at Eskom and where the corruption was going on there. And maybe the best way to, to handle this is just to go back to the whistleblower who approached you and why. Uh, well, obviously, as you know, the, the whistleblower, shall, shall we call him that, but he is actually the BE shareholder of the company that was set up to avail of a, a rather sizable project at Eskom. And when I say sizable, we're talking uh, in, in the billions of rand. And the arrangement he entered into uh, with the company was that he would become a 30% shareholder. And they he didn't really have to do anything. And I think you really have to be suspicious if you don't have to do anything. But your name is there and you signed for the IDC loans and so on and so forth. And that's what he did. And then after two or three years, he started getting suspicious and he came to me. And we looked into it and we've uncovered a massive fraud and corruption um, and payments to senior managers at ESCOM. The guy uh, owns 35% of the company, so presumably something must have sparked his suspicion. Yeah, well, I think it's quite often what happens is uh, there was a steady deterioration in the relationship, which started probably last year, and it reached a point where he, you know, there were unfriendly letters going backwards and forwards, and then then he approached us and he said he suspected that there was hanky panky going on. And we started looking into it, and we managed to go and speak to another person who is now a whistleblower. Um, and they brought us a whole lot of documentation, which clearly shows that this company, in order to gain these lucrative contracts from ESCOM, um, paid millions and millions of rand to a senior ESCOM employee. And they did so. They weren't very smart about, you know, they left quite a, a, a nice audit trail. Um, so they put together invoices, and even the invoices themselves had VAT numbers on, so there was VAT included. But when we ran the VAT numbers on the SARS system, we found that actually there were fake VAT numbers. Um, and, 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 you know, at the end of the day, the whole thing was just completely fraudulent. We've already uncovered payments exceeding 20 million rand to that senior employee. And then that senior employee had a level of authority uh, within ESCOM, uh, and that enabled him and his management team to, within budget, spend up to 750 million rand or place orders uh, to the tune of 750 million rand without having to get board approval. That's a big number. Uh, yeah, Paul, seven hundred and fifty million. He, uh, his name is uh, Tlakudi. Uh, yes. Is he? Uh, how far below Brian Molefi was this guy? If he had signing power over seven hundred and fifty million rand. Well, he was a uh, procurement executive. Um, he was a very senior person. Hmm. He would have probably. I mean, in the big scheme of things, Eskom is a massive company. 
um, he would have probably, if you, if you took at levels, he'd probably be three or four levels below uh, Malefi. But the point we made is that, you know, when you've got bad leadership in any company or the leadership is distracted doing its own thing, and in this case we now know as a result of the Sondo Commission, you had um, the senior executives of ESCOM prior to Brian Malefi were all turfed out. They were suspended and got rid of. And we now know that Dudu Maeni and her son Talenti Maeni and an ex-Rhodesian magistrate by the name of Nick Linnell, they met with the then chairman of ESCOM and uh, Jacob Zuma, and they plotted and schemed, and that's also on our website, they plotted and schemed as to how they would get rid of these senior executives, and they duly did. They got rid of them, and they opened the door then for the likes of um, Brian Malefi and his his friends in, in, in crime. And um, they came on board. They quickly did a repeat of what they did at Transnet or you know, they got into bed with the Guptas and Tegeta and so on and so forth, and they raped the country, uh, the company. Mm-hmm. And while they were doing that, the managers at the lower level thought, well, if they can do it, because everybody must have been able to see what was going on. Um, I mean, we've we've met with some of the other senior managers at ESCOM, and we hear stories like coal being dug up from mine A, which happens to be adjacent to power station A, Coal being dug up from mine B, which happens to be adjacent to power station B. And the coal from mine B is transported by road to power station A. And the coal from uh, mine A is transported to power station B because the managers can make more money on the kickbacks. So that kind of massive cost incurrence that was taking place, all it did was increase the cost of of, of electricity. And of course, it led to a situation where they deliberately allowed the stockpiles of coal to go down so that they could use emergency purchasing uh, procedures and bypass normal procurement regulations and spend billions and billions of rand with companies owned by the Guptas. How, how crooked is it? Because this guy, Antonio Trinidadi, the chap that you've outed here with his company Tabular Construction Projects, got billions of rands worth of contracts by paying this, this crooked Lakudi fellow. How, how deep does the rot go? Or how well, deep did it go at Eskim? I mean, we, we thought it was quite funny because when we started looking into this fellow Lakudi, we heard that he was at loggerheads with Coco. Now, you know, um, they were dishing dirt on each other. Hmm. <laughs> you know, there's no honor among thieves. But um, the, the good news is that he's gone from ESCOM now. But I think what what's happened is that the people have forgotten, oh, by the way, you know, he was responsible for an overspend at these power stations. This was Kusili Power Station where there's been a massive overspend and the project still isn't finished. It's it's more or less coming to its end now. But, I mean, it should have been finished two years ago. So who pays for all this? Well, it's you, me, and everybody else that buys electricity. Well, clearly we know that. We know that government's in trouble. We know that there's billions of rands of taxpayers' money that's already been put in and more that's going to be. But I guess taxpayers are saying, how can we pay for all of this and be expected to perhaps pay another one percentage or two percentage more on VAT when nobody's gone to jail yet. How does that whole process work, Paul? 
Well, I, you know, I'm, I, as you know, I'm very positive about the future of South Africa. I always have been, even, even when I was getting dragged off a plane and carted off to jail to be tortured. But the, the bottom line is that, um, the wind has changed direction. And I agree with, uh, Shamila Batari's, um, approach. And that is they're not going to rush out and start collaring people. When you arrest people and bring them before court and it's not ready for prosecution, you run the risk of the matter being thrown out of court. And then there's all sorts of legal issues that are attached to that. So what we've suggested, and I've written to her, in fact, on that point, I've said, look, there are a number of cases. And if you take this particular case with this fellow Trindadi and his fellow directors, a tubular group of companies, they clearly were at it for a long time. And if you're going to investigate and prosecute them on every single offence that they've committed, the trial is going to last 10 or 15 years. So what we've done, we've said, look here, there's some low-hanging fruit, there's copies of invoices, the invoices with copies of the bank statements, there's the payment vouchers, the money was paid, short and simple, it amounts to a gratification, it was corruption, nail them. So that's the approach we're taking. And I think it has to be that approach. If you have to prosecute, for example, Brian Malethi on everything that he did wrong or is alleged to have done wrong, that trial will drag on for years. And it's not really going to make a lot of difference to the sentence that he's going to get. So what they need to do is pick the low hanging fruit Mm -hmm. and go after those people. We opened a docket in August last year pertaining to Vincent Smith, the MP who was taking kickbacks from Basasa. Now, we put all the evidence together, we opened the docket, and to this date, nothing has happened. So, yeah, I think we've got to complete the exercise of uncapturing the criminal justice system. Shamila Batoi herself cannot go out there and prosecute and have all these people arrested and run the trials. She has to have good people below her to do that. And that process is taking shape quite nicely. And I should imagine, <laughs> you, you might have heard this from me before, but there will be arrests before Christmas. <laughs> Which Christmas? <laughs> yeah, no, Christmas 2019. I'm uh, joking, I'm Paul. I'm pulling no your leg. <laughs> and in the case of this fellow, we've asked in our docket, we've asked the police to seize his passport mm-hmm. because him and his family members all have dual passports, they have um, Portuguese passports and there's a great incentive for him not to hang around. Paul O'Sullivan, South Africa's uh, investigative sleuth who is the man who many of us feel have managed to well, he's he's, uh, changed the course of history in South Africa and will continue to do so into the future. Stay with us, we've got an interesting interview with an entrepreneur coming up. Okay, there we go. Are you ready to go? No, right. Okay. Yeah, let's let's try our best here. Okay, <laughs> we're gonna we're going on right now. Well, it's a warm welcome to Gideon Galloway. Gideon, uh, I hope you threw all of those issues in the traffic there, but lovely to have you on the show. Um, a lot of people know King Price. I don't know if uh, they know you yet, but I guess in time they are going to. Just a bit of background. What got you into starting this business in the first instance? Um, I like, I work for other insurance companies, uh, 
uh, for about what, 10 years. So insurance is just something that um, all the gears fit together. It, it intrigues me tremendously. And um, it's something very scalable. And uh, South Africa are good with financial services. So, so if I had to choose the industry, um, I, I'm passionate about advertising as well and some other businesses. But uh, insurance is definitely uh, the one that's the most dynamic and scalable, I would say. It's interesting what you guys have done, and, and I guess we can all relate to this. Uh, we know our cars, the minute you drive them out of the showroom, are worth less, and that every month they get worth less and less. But the car insurance that certainly I pay doesn't fall, but with King Price it does. So where did this idea come from? Um, well, it's, uh, it's back in 2000, what's it, 2005. I, uh, a BMW engineer from Germany presented the slideshow, and he, showed a car that um, is actually a new make and model, a BMW, crashed at the same speed, same angle, let's say 30 kilometers an hour. And he showed that it, it could cost half the price to repair the new car versus the old car. And that's mainly due to um, uh, um, it's a far less panels that needs to be repaired, uh, speed of repair, all of those things. So when they design cars, they... Um, uh, do take cost of ownership into account, you know, the insurance, the total cost in a, in a value chain. And uh, that intrigued me, especially in South Africa where you hear power prices go up, labor costs go up, all of those kind of things. So that was the first uh, one. And then um, cars get safer. So, so your incident ratio should get better in time because, I mean, ABS will be there, all of those kind of things in time. So that's not even taking into account your um, – depreciation on your vehicle yet. That is just plainly how they design cars, how get safer, easier to repair and all of it. Um, and that's where the idea sparked if you can um, create an insurance company or at least in any point in time, uh, write the client uh, on, on the assets and their risk. And you can give a real-time price uh, in any point in time. That I, I guess the challenge would be IT to, to be able to do that. And the other one would be the willingness to do that because – um, it's very easy to just bump up premiums every yeah, year. Sure. Uh, results, yeah, sure. Do you bump down premiums then? <laughs> well, on asset that, assets that depreciate, yes, we uh, do. And, okay, and, and, and I mean, people say it's small amounts. Uh, it's correct. It is small amounts. But, I mean, if you uh, – it's, it's if, let's say if you take off six rand a month, uh, uh, um, it's not six times twelve. It's six times say seventy-two. Because six rand on six rand uh, mm. every month. So, and then your increase point for the following year is is way lower. So, I, I mean, it really amounts to a lot at the end of the day. I can um, over a let's say thirty-six month lifespan, it's at least uh, twenty-five to thirty percent that you pay less on insurance. Um, and uh, it, it's not a it's not a no claims bonus or anything. I mean, that's if you have claims and all of it. That's just um, just uh, to do the pure science of the asset is depreciating, uh, depreciating and then applying the risk factor to it. Uh, a home, for instance, won't depreciate in value. So uh, we're not going to take it down on, on home premiums. But certainly assets that depreciate, I just think it's a fair, a fair to do that. Kirion, are you, a, are you an, uh, an actuary or, or have you got that kind of qualification or did you just see this guy from BMW and say, hey, there's a good idea? <laughs> well, I was in the industry uh, then when, when I met with him. So I, I was busy heading up the, uh, to start an e-insurer for the group I was working with internationally. So um, 
Um, I've always got a passion for technology. I've studied computer science, so no, not the actuary, but I love I love maths and I love um, pricing and I love um, yeah. I, I just like numbers a lot. So computer science, put that together with a, a love for marketing and uh, and away you go. How did you get going though? It, it's it's one thing to say I've got this idea, I want to start a business. How did you convince, presumably friends? Uh, backers to to come and put money behind you. <laughs> you take all of your own money and put it into it. <laughs> um, but uh, that, that that was probably the hardest part. I think uh, 2007 I resigned and uh, started pitching in 2008. So I initially thought it would take probably 12 months. Then you would have your IT system ready and um, the funding because uh, we're talking, uh, you know, it's quite a big sum. And then, um, but it took four years. 43 pitches later, lots of due diligences. Um, and at, in, in that period, there's a lot of times that you want to give up and then you keep on going. So, so I'm, I'm really now a professional pitcher. I, I, I know all flavors. You know, this is actually, this is a CI, this is a marketing guy. I, I know all angles how, how to pitch it. I guess the, the learning thing of the biggest thing I learned was never to give up and, and, um, now you need those times for when you launch, because when you launch, it, uh, there's even bigger obstacles coming your way, and uh, keep going. Let me just understand it. So it took you 42 pitches in four years to get the money together to do the business. Is that right? Uh, yeah, well, so I put in a lot of my own money so to, mm. to fund it. So, uh, a substantial amount and why now it's 42 because I had to count all the emails and slips and all of it to trade that for shares at the end so, so it's not like I've come sucking this um, so that was yeah it's 43 and, and, and it's not a pitch you know pitch is then uh, you sign exclusivity and then it's a DD and then mm. it's a negotiation and um, so it really took up a, a while um, but I mean uh, yeah but my resources were, you know, limited to, to, to a couple of million. Uh, um, to, to really start an insurance company, you would probably need a billion. So I, I needed the, the big backers behind me. You know, uh, you need to get your financial services license, all of those things. And 70% of all your costs uh, when you launch goes into marketing. Because if you don't make it, um, uh, you know, there's a certain amount of spend that you have to reach to be um, to break through the clutter, if I can say, mention it like that. So mm. it's it's tough for an investor to sell that to investors. To, to you know, seventy percent of all the startup capital is going to go into an endless pit, and you're going to just believe uh, that the policies will come and you'll pull through that in in three to five years. So. What um, about when we here and then we've done that? And um, well, more than that, you've spent a hundred times uh, what you first had to put into in the acquisition of Stangen. Uh, opportunistic, or were there other bidders for it? And how does it fit within the whole your whole operation? Um, there were other bidders. Um, I, it's strategically for us. We always wanted to. Um, Go into broader financial services, not just uh, you know short-term insurance. So we've launched in Namibia. We've we've expanded our range to commercial insurance, buildings, agri, marine now, and all of those things. So life seems to be the next logical step. We started this journey three years ago, and um, the, and uh, it's just uh, we'll just win so much time and knowledge uh, if we could acquire something uh, sizable for us at the time. And um, that's why we started this 
talks uh, when this opportunity came along more than a year ago. Uh, we were one of the three final bidders, and, and we successfully um, were chosen as, as the partner. And for us, it just means that now you've got a team ready, you've got products ready, you've got a system ready. Um, you know, it saves us two years in, in terms of timing, which is in our world at this stage probably more important than um, than just a pure. Uh, um. well, well, I think we, we've, uh, um, we've just about run out of our airtime now. That was Gideon Galloway. Fascinating story of an entrepreneur. 41 pitches. My word, you've got to uh, admire, uh, if nothing else, just admire the, the um, post, what do they call it? Uh, int- entrepreneurship is 1%, uh, is, is 1% inspiration. And 99% perspiration. Well, I think Gideon uh, is living proof of that. Well, David Shapiro indeed is with us. Dave, I've been trying to get hold of Magda. You cannot believe it. It's like I'm, I'm stricken. She's uh, somewhere in the world, and I know that the, uh, the, the, the reception there is really bad, but I'm so pleased that the United States is better. Are you still in New York? I am in New York. <laughs> sweltering. <laughs> what is what is sweltering by the weather? Sweltering. No, no in the uh, what would have been in our thirties, in their eighties. Uh, there's not a day that's gone by in the last week or so where we haven't been under eighty. Um, no, but it's lovely. It's been very very nice. I've never been in New York at this time of the year. I'm normally uh, just either what they call spring or I mean, what's it, fall or autumn. Or just uh, coming into spring, so it's always been chilly. But this is this is lovely, and it's, particular, it's really been wonderful. A good uh, mm. particular reason for you coming there. I, I follow you on Twitter, as uh, geez, mm-hmm. David. I mean, how many years have we been on Twitter now? Because I remember talking about <laughs> well, that back in the Mayweb studio. <laughs> I, I know exactly because uh, my handle is at uh, at David Shapiro sixty one. And I'm 72, so that's 11 years. Well, sorry, I'm still 71. I'll be, so it's 10 years, yeah. Okay, so we're having your decade, years. and there's uh, 33,000 people who are interested in everything that you have to say. 34,000 people, I apologize. Uh, mm-hmm. Just went up, obviously, another thousand. But according to Twitter, you're in New York because mm. of a listing of a company that your son-in-law mm. is the chief financial officer of. Well, well, that was part of the reason. The other was to see my grandchildren. It just coincided. He's, you know, Brett, my son-in-law, um, is from South Africa, and he's always had an interest in biotech. He's a, a medical man by profession, and so he he gave up being a doctor. Even you know, he was qualified doctor. He did an MBA, and has been very leaning towards biotech. He's he's loved that kind of area. And his company, the one that he's done quite a few things in the U.S. I mean, being an analyst, being an investment banker, but uh, this particular one is—it's uh, a company called Prevail Therapeutics, which is um, using gene technology to uh, what's a combat to find a solution for Parkinson's. Mm-hmm. And and I, th- I think yeah, and and what you know what's interested me is that um, they're down here in 29th Street and they set up their labs there. And I was actually chatting to him last night about that because uh, particularly in biotech, they like to be close to the hospitals and to the universities that produce the technicians or the lab, what would you call them, the, um, scientists. You know, the scientists, mm. the scientists, yeah, the scientists. 
So um, they, when they get to that kind of point, you know, there's a fair degree of success. They've got to go through a lot of testing, but I mean, they've passed quite a few hurdles. And and, and also, um, Alec, what fascinated me is when they were listed. You know, I, I must say that I always thought that Nasdaq was a floor. I've never been to Nasdaq. I've been to the New York Stock Exchange, but it's nothing more than a room. <laughs> it's almost a, a television studio. So. Um, we weren't allowed in. That's Linda and myself, uh, my wife and myself. But the ch- their children and their and Karen, my daughter, went in there, and we were watching from outside. But big celebrations. Look, they're coming under a bit of pressure now. The short sellers come in, which they always do with these kind of things. Mm-hmm. But, but Alec, it was one of a number of businesses that listed on that day on Nasdaq, and it just identifies or demonstrates the level of techno- technological advancement. You know, in the U.S., and that's that's what fascinates me. What kind just of, doesn't stop. What kind of businesses uh, were they sharing the stage with? All tech, all tech, mm. and a lot in uh, pharmaceutical as well. So those kind of businesses would tend to migrate towards Nasdaq, I think, uh, which is better suited for them to list. David, and, mm-hmm. when you walk the streets of New York uh, mm. and you talk to people there, and you see a country with uh, under 3% unemployment rate How is the mood At the moment You know when we see the news We yeah. see Donald Trump uh, Who's apparently splitting the American people in two Where you are would presumably not be Great con- uh, country for Trump But <laughs> <laughs> How do the New Yorkers see the future How, how is America going I, You know New York is, is Is not really a reflection Of greater America it's uh, it's 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 a almost an economy of its own, but um, you don't see unemployment. Look, it's summer, so you see. I've seen a lot more people sleeping on benches than I've ever seen before. Hmm. You know, I think the summer attracts them here because there's so many tourists that they feel that if they put a, a cup in front of them, they're going to raise more money, um, particularly in the summer, and it's much more comfortable. But by no means what we see in South Africa. I'm, I'm talking about a handful of people, but you do see people on the train. You know, when you ride on a train, they come in and, and do a little bit of an act. But overall, um, wherever you go, you'll see help wanted, you know, um, in windows, particularly in retailers um, over this period. So the mood, people are not as bullish as I thought they would be, but they're not bearish. Uh, in any way at all. You know? So it's somewhere in the middle. The Trump situation, politics is big here. Mm-hmm. You know, politics is very, very big. And, the, and the, they debate issues. Uh, and I've been fascinated in the debates, the Democratic vote, uh, but, but, uh, debate, that the actual issues that people um, talk about, you know, immigration is a big thing. Abortion is a very, very big subject. So the, the they... Um, the Democratic leader or the contender will be will be uh, selected, I think, first to be Trump, and secondly, on proper issues, mm. uh, not not party politics. So I, I always I always enjoy listening to what they say, you know. And you've got the Bernie Sanders, which is um, you know a socialist Elizabeth Warren, who wants to break up business. I mean, they, you know, they're big names, and Elizabeth Warren's doing well. So that's that, I think that's the difference that that you pick up here. People are very conscious of what the candidates stand for. Are they likely? Oh, and obviously, it's it's still another year to go. But are the Americans likely 
to re-elect Trump. We hear, you know, we've got we, we've got Bloomberg Radio now on on Business Radio with our licenses at Bloomberg and our licenses in Wall Street Journal. We've got a lot of great stuff that we mm. we carry through, and mm. I listen to it all day. And I, I'm hearing more and more commentators suggesting that uh, Trump, it's Trump's to lose rather than yes. uh, the Democrats to yeah. win, which which I, would I seem so. strange to us. I think so. I don't think they've got a powerful enough candidate. The only one who could stand up to him would be Joe Biden, but who's a man in his mid to late 70s and uh, um, I think carries with him a lot of issues and certainly not likely to attract the uh, the younger vote. Alec, you know, another thing that people don't understand, I think, you only hear Spanish in, in New York. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's it's so So there's a massive amount of Younger people here of immigrants of uh, what would you call them? You know of 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 um, Hispanics come mm. from Hispanics. Mm. Yeah, mm. so I think that's a very important vote um, vote as well. Um, I'm fascinated by the number of of outsiders that actually live in New York of of um, of expats, but it's it's you know you can't take anything away from it. What another aspect? Is the massive development? I've gone down to Hudson Yard now, which has been rec- which is Chelsea uh, down. I, I don't know what it was previously called, the Meatpackers District. These weren't very, um, these weren't very not livable, but they were low end areas, and that they've all been gentrified. Um, Hudson Yard today is a, is a massive area, uh, massive residential and business area and wherever you go you've got these pencil thin skyscrapers going up you know 100 stories plus mm. um unaffordable to us totally unaffordable and there, there, there's another element of which we don't quite appreciate when it comes to new york is broadway as a as a money spinner you know we we just read about broadway but it's it's a huge employer and it's a very important aspect of uh, of the New York uh, economy. Um, so, it's not only the actors, but it's everybody associated with the production. When you come home, and that pet, mm-hmm, mm. when you come home, are now, you going to be buying yeah. more shares on the global economy pumping because of what you're seeing in America? I, I think I think I it, it it leans me more towards tech. Because I think this is the missing equation. I'm, I'm trying to reconcile, like you, I'm a Bloomberg radio, I'm a Bloomberg watcher. You know, I like whatever it is, the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times. And I'm finding it difficult to reconcile some very negative comments about, about uh, equities. I'm going to say equities or the global economy with what you see in technological uh, advancement. And that's where I think there's a there's a kind of almost a disconnect. You know, we're all worried about the noise around whether the Fed's going to lower rates or how many it's you know when they're going to do. Is it going to be 50 points? Is it going to be 100 points? We continue to debate issues like that, and yet there's a whole element of the economy that's just moving ahead despite that. Mm. I, I had I have to tell you this as well. I did come here to see my grandchildren as well, who've gone off to camp. And I sat down with my grandson of 11, Giddy, who's going to be, he'll be 12 soon, and he plays Fortnite. And I didn't realize the compulsion, what would it be, the compelling attraction of games. And why, why does he play it? Is that it's a social issue. He sits with earphones talking to his friends all over the place. And they're talking to each other, playing this game together. So it's much more social than just sitting there aimlessly knocking out people. 
And then when you do go on, at his stage, one stage, he said, you know, there are 96 different people around the world playing with me. Incredible. <laughs> so, well, well, you should be you should be coming back and filling your boots with Nospas because there's Varin Tech uh, mm. and, and, of course, their biggest stock, uh, Tencent, is in the games business. I've been there forever, yeah. I've been there forever, you know, and uh, I continue. And, and, and I watch people, Alec, and I think you've got to watch younger people or all people, what they're doing with their phones, uh, what they're streaming, what they're looking at, what's coming through there. And I think it's, uh, it's a big element that's, that's not really factored in to, um, to, to economic growth. Um, and, and, and that's why, you know, by choice, I prefer to go to these kind of stocks maybe than the traditional ones um, that we've always been attracted to. Dave, uh, talking technology and the U.S. and New York and, uh, well, a, a part of the, the, uh, the lexicon now is Uber. Let's Uber here. Let's Uber there. Mm, mm, um, mm. Uber had listed on the market. Have you yes. had a chance to look at it? And, and from the way that you're talking, is it one of those stocks that we should be considering? I, th- I, you know what? I, I, it's too much to go. I, I, I admire their technology, uh, but uh, you know, it's it's too easy to copy. I think, and that that that's one of my biggest worries. Is that um, um, I love what they've done, and everybody Ubers. You know, you just see uh, wherever you go here, people are Ubering. There's another place called. There's another one called Via, where you share a ride. So you can pick up a ride that's going down a road and you can just hop on and hop, hop off mm. for $5. So there are many of these competitors coming, I think, um, which, which, you know, you don't know who the winners are going to be, but I think definitely you, you have to follow them. You know, you know what I mean? You might not buy them, Alec, but you can't ignore them. Yeah. If you, if you know what I mean. Well, you can't ignore, you, know I mean? mm. you, you can't ignore mm. Elon Musk. Uh, he came out no, with his quarterly no. results from Tesla yesterday, blew everybody away, doing mm. far better than anticipated. How big a story is he in the U.S.? We know from South Africa, oh, he's, he's, you know, he's a South African, he's a Pretoria <laughs> boy, so we give him great coverage. But is he, no, no, he's is a he superstar. Yeah, he's a superstar here. No, everybody knows him. They love his motor car because it's a, it's a very prestigious uh, car to drive. And the other thing is that it identifies who you are. You know, people are very conscious of those of 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 uh changing the environment of of uh you know what i mean of being a mm. modern person and i think when you drive a tesla you, you're making a statement and i think people want to make that statement so um and it's not only in america globally but he's spacex as well you can't ignore spacex sure. i yeah. mean oh how does so it, he's, mm. he's, he's a, you know, he's, he's a superstar, you know, and, and he well known. You know, people love to go with him and they love to criticize him and et cetera, but you can't take anything away from what he does. You know, without those, Elon, without the Elon Musk, we'd be nowhere. That's, I'm a great admirer of the Bezos, the Zuckerbergs, et cetera, just for what they have done and how they've changed the way that we do things. David Chabiero talking to us from New York, and uh, he'll be back soon uh, talking to us more about the South African opportunity. But isn't it interesting to be getting the insights then on uh, on the ground in the U.S. where things do seem to be continuing to hum? Sometimes uh, when we look at the media, well, we don't quite get the full picture, as always, David Shapiro, though, there to fill us in. We're going to be talking in just a little while with Dario Milo. He's the country's top media lawyer. And we'll be talk to, talking to him about this rush to defamation courts.
Hello. Dario, it's Alec. How are you? Hi, Alex. Yes, fine and you. Excellent, excellent. You ready to talk? I am, yes. Oh. Whenever you are, uh, when will we start now? Brilliant. Yeah, we'll start now. I'll just turn the music down and then come straight to you. Okay, excellent. Thank you. Okay. Well, as promised, uh, we have Dario Milo with us now. He is the, uh, well, I suppose uh, he has to be called the preeminent um, uh, expert on defamation because he's even written a book about it. Dario, that was a long time ago that you wrote, uh, more than 10 years ago, Defamation and Freedom of Speech. Did you know back then uh, that, that it was going to be such a big deal in the South African society? Alec, um, I didn't. I mean, that, that uh, book was based on my PhD um, in London, uh, where I did a, a thesis on defamation and uh, free speech and privacy. Um, and, um, I, and that was before I returned to Webber in practice uh, as a partner um, in media law. Um, and of course, uh, you know, the, the law of defamation has always been there, but I think in recent years it has become far more um, of, a, of a, um, a tool that is used often. Um, sometimes illegitimately and abused by those who seek to um, to sue, uh, you know, the publishers of, um, of of matters of public interest. Yeah, I, I guess it's always a, a, a difficulty when you're in the media, like I am. I know very much which side of the fence I'm on on this one. But I don't know how much you can talk about Trevor Manuel and the EFF, given that you are you Trevor Manuel's lawyer in this. Uh, but, yes. but but that that has sparked off a whole lot of. Of other yeah. uh, uh, claimants. Well, Alec, I can't talk about it, and I don't think that sparked it off because the the interesting thing about Trevor Manuel's claim against the EFF, and, and there I acted for um, unusually for the applicant or the plaintiff. Um, usually, I'm on the side of the defendant, the person um, defending free speech and the media in particular. Uh, but but what's interesting about the Manuel case is that it's a case of fake news. Um, in, in other words, if you look at uh, Matojani's judgment, what he finds is that this was malicious speech by the EFF. It was speech which he says um, they knew to be false. And in fact, um, the EFF conceded by the time it got to the High Court that what was said about Manuel, in other words, that he's corrupt and nepotistic in their media statement, was false. They say, you know, the meaning of the statement has to be viewed in context and they've got other fancy arguments about why the broad statement is true, but they concede that uh, it's not true that um, Trevor Manuel is related to uh, the SARS commissioner or that um, there was a close business association, which is what they said in the statement. So, so what you have there is a case where there is a it's common cause that the specific statements about the applicant are false. Um, the EFF uh, didn't put up any defense to uh, defend this, and in those circumstances, I think the court came to the correct conclusion, which is that there should be a declaration of falsity and apology and then damages. Um, to be contrasted with that are a number of the cases. Take Arthur Fraser's case, where he's suing Jacques Poe for defamation. Um, now, in that case, and, and in any, many other cases where, where there's been a bit of a, a spree of litigation, one needs to look very carefully at the proof that the publisher has to prove what they're saying. Because ultimately, if you can prove that what you've said is true, or if you can prove that at least if it's not true, um, you can't prove it's true, at least you acted reasonably in getting to where you got, um, you know, in terms of your sources and your verification steps, 
the courts will protect you. And, and that's what's um, amazing about the law of defamation is it achieves this balance between the right to dignity of people like mm. Trevor Manuel, who can show that what was published about them was false. And on the other hand, the rights of um, publishers, such as uh, the media and Jacques Poe and others, who can say, yes, we did defame you, but we did so because what we're saying is true. Or we took, you know, uh, reasonable steps to verify the allegations. This whole thing of the right to dignity, I've uh, done a lot of um, analyzing of Cyril Ramaphosa recently because I read through the autobiography as a as a as an audio book, and in that discussion, uh, what came out was this: how the right to dignity, or certainly the way Anthony Butler writes in the biography, the right to dignity was almost slipped into the South African Constitution. But now, and, and it's, it's a little bit difficult for all of us to understand, what does it mean? What, where does one draw the line on, on uh, where your dignity starts and ends? It's a great philosophical question. Um, the, the legal answer is, in terms of our common law um, and in terms of the way the Constitution, the Constitution frames it, is that dignity is a value that obviously underlies the entire Constitution. And in fact, underlies all rights, even free speech. Free speech um, is, is, is largely important, not just because it's important in our democracy to hold powerful people to account, but also because it helps the dignity of the speaker um, uh, to be able to express him or herself about what's going on in society. Um, so the, the way the law navigates in a defamation context, the, the dignity of the person defamed versus the dignity and the free speech rights of the person who is doing the defaming is it says, you know, um, if you can show, say, take, take the Trevor Manuel case again, if Manuel can show that what he said about him is defamatory, and here it's the allegation of corruption, so it clearly is defamatory, then it's up to the person who published to prove that either it's true or it is reasonable. So the idea is that, you know, it, it's, it's not a, an actionable um, violation of your right to dignity and reputation if what I say about you is true and in the public interest, or it's reasonable. That's the way the law tries mm. to navigate between the two interests at stake in a defamation case. Now, I know you can't say too much about it, but uh, we ran a piece this week uh, written by the inimitable Ed Herbst on Terry Bell. Now, Terry is a Labour journalist. Yeah. He, he wrote and uh, he, he put uh, quite a, a lot of effort into finding out about Iqbal Survey, I think, who was his former employer, wrote an article, yeah. and for his troubles, he's being sued for a 100 million rand. Now, I don't think yeah. in his wildest dreams, Terry Bell would be able to find a 100 million rand to pay it, but where, where does that kind of number, is it just kind of thrown in, is it just yeah. thrown in there to, to grab headlines? I think I'm not sure what the motivation is in that particular case, um, and I can't talk about the specifics of it. I'm not involved in the case, but... Mm. Uh, but uh, what I would like to say, just at the general level about the level of damages, is this, is that um, if you look at the history of damages for reputation in South Africa, um, the bracket is generally speaking up to about half a million. And, and in fact, in Trevor Manuel's case, as you know, he was awarded half a million, which he's going to donate to, to charity if he ever gets the money. Um, you know, the EFF is, of course, appealing or they're applying to the FCA to appeal. So the bracket is generally within a few awards uh, in the half a million bracket, but none really over that except perhaps by way of settlement um, as opposed to a court-ordered amount. 
Um, what that tells you is that um, our courts don't regard defamation as a way you make a fortune because, um, you know, the idea is that you need to vindicate your reputation and vindicating your reputation can be done through apologies, it can be done through declarations of falsity, and it can be done also by a damages award, um, but at the same time that damages award, our courts have said, can't be so um, uh, significant that it in itself, or the threat of that damages award, might stifle the media from doing their job. So, so there's that kind of balancing. Now, on the other hand, you get patrimonial losses. So on the one side, you've got reputational harm, where, as I say, the courts have not been overly generous in what they award. But on the other hand, you get patrimonial harm, which is where someone can say, I have suffered actual loss because of, say, this defamatory article. Um, and, and, and a good example might be someone who loses out on a job um, offer uh, because of a particular publication that they are corrupt. Now, if that person can prove that it was false, or, or, or if that person sues, and, and, then, and then put it this way, and the publisher can't prove that it's true, and that person who's lost the job can show that it was because of the publication that he lost his job. And then in addition to that, because it's a patrimonial loss claim, he has to prove the plaintiff that the person who published it knew it was false or was reckless. Then you get your patrimonial harm. And of course, mm-hmm. that could be, if it was a 20 million dollar if you like, it could be 20 million euro. So uh, you've got to prove your causation. You've got to prove that the publisher uh, was reckless as to whether it was true or false. And then, yes, you can get patrimonial harm of whatever amount you can prove in rands and cents. But that's quite a different category of damages to um, the damages in a reputational harm case, uh, where the courts have traditionally not been overly generous. Dario, are we likely to see more of uh, of this being used in 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 the future, given that it it gets so much publicity? You just think about Jacob Zuma and that uh, famous Zapiro uh, Lady yes. Justice cartoon, where uh, then President Zuma uh, threatened fire and thunder against Zapiro, and the whole thing just eventually went away. Yes, I was involved in that case for Zapiro, and. That's a very good example of um, what I would call a slap lawsuit. In other words, uh, what, what the Americans, in fact, have labeled a strategic lawsuit against public participation, a slap. Mm-hmm. And many jurisdictions in America, many states have anti-slap lawsuits. I believe it's, uh, it's time that South African courts try to develop a principle of slap, anti-slap uh, um, defamation suits. In the Zuma case, you know, Zuma sued Zapiro for five million for the Rape of Justice cartoon, but he also sued Zapiro for two other cartoons, and he sued the Sunday World for a joke, he sued the Sunday Independent for a column written by William Gumede, he sued the, the Built for a letter to the editor, um, and, and, and various, uh, he sued the Citizen for a news story, um, the Star for a news story, um, and essentially his claims ultimately added up to around 50 million rand against, against the media. Um, and this this swing spree, in my view, was uh, clearly a strategy to try and um, hold it over the media's heads without ever progressing the matters such that, you know, he could actually take it to court because it seemed from observing his conduct in that in those cases, you know, not doing anything after issuing the summonses, that actually he didn't want it to get to court. What we did in the Zapiro case is we said, let's call his bluff. 
Um, and that meant actually, uh, even though we were the defendants, Sunday Times and Zapiro, we progressed it so that we said to Zuma, if you want to sue us for defamation, we are prepared for it. We want to defend ourselves in court. Zapiro can show that this is fair comment based on facts that are true. Um, and effectively, we, we pushed uh, Zuma through the procedures of the court case such that he ultimately had to make a decision, and he made that decision pretty much on the weekend before the court case was supposed to start. Either he had to pursue the thing, pursue the case, which meant that he would have to give evidence because he was also suing for dignity harm, um, and be cross-examined by them, Trenzo, um, or he withdrew the case, and ultimately he decided to withdraw the case, the eve before, you know, literally on the eve of the court hearing. Um, so that's a good... And, and then I must add that after that... Um, you know, rapidly withdrew all his other claims against the media after that um, major, major concession on his part. So, so that was the, a kind of case where the media decided that, you know, let's actually hold the plaintiff here, the former president, accountable for trying to sue us for defamation. If he wants his day in court, he'll have it because we want our day in court. If he doesn't, he must withdraw and tender costs, and that's exactly what he did. Um, but in order to get to that point to call someone's bluff, you actually have to, unfortunately, um, progress the legal action. Um, that means spending money. It means, you know, briefing counsel. It means getting ready for the court case, preparing for the trial. Um, and, and many defamation defendants would much rather, simply because they don't have the resources, let it die a natural death. Um, but I believe in some of these high-profile cases, it's worth, as I, as I call it, calling the bluff of the person suing you. Um, Dario, you ultimately will get to that point. Fabulous insights. Thanks to Dario Milo. He's a director at uh, Weber Wenzel and uh, also the author of a 2008 book, Defamation and Freedom of Speech. He's also, as you heard there, the man who uh, was defending or the lawyer for Trevor Manuel in the famous case against the EFF, which has seen uh, the uh, spate of lawsuits that have come thereafter. Just to close off the show tonight, to uh, bring you up to date on the markets, the All Share Index on the JSE was down about, uh, well, 0.14%, let's not say about uh, 80 points, um, which is really a, a pretty quiet day. Uh, no big moves one way or the other, excepting for gold shares, which had another good run. They uh, back the index back towards that 2000 level. They're up by 1.5% today. The South African Rand currently trading at 14 Rand 10 against the US dollar. Weakening a little bit on the day. It got close to 14. Uh, and against the pound, the Rand is now sitting at 17 Rand and 72 cents. Major moves, top five. Uh, RCL Foods was the uh, best performer of the big shares today. That was up 4%. ABI InBev also 4%. Harmony Northern and Sabanya close off the list of the winners. And on the way down, we have Vivo Energy down 3%, Fortress, TrueWorths, Anglo and Supergroup. It's been a pleasure being with you on uh, Rational Radio this week. Look forward to being back again Wednesday next week. Please join us then. And until the next time, from Alec Hogg, cheerio.